Make no mistake about it, Dean had a record. Burglary, arson, auto theft, breaking and entering. But so did the owner of the green Pontiac Bonneville that matched the description of the vehicle that had shots fired from it in multiple instances, including at the intersection by the Montgomery Wards on the night that Diane Love was shot. But it appears that the only case law enforcement ever tried to investigate as if they were the suspect was against Dean. They never even investigated John, his buddy that he was with that night, the alleged owner of the missing 38 caliber weapon that was allegedly with them in the vehicle the night of the shooting. In the report, there was a letter to Detective Betty Rominger, dated September 27, 1983, from Assistant State Attorney Mark Gilner, with the subject heading, Dean, last name redacted, and it read as follows. Having reviewed the facts of this case, as presented to me by yourself, it is my opinion that manslaughter is the most that could be charged as a result of the factual scenario. This opinion is based upon a scenario wherein the defendant is haphazardly shooting a handgun out the window of a moving vehicle and unintentionally shoots a person to death thereby. This act would amount to culpable negligent manslaughter. The statute of limitations on manslaughter is three years after the date that crime was committed. The crime of first-degree murder is a capital felony and it has no statute of limitations. To my knowledge, there is no evidence to support either charge of first or second degree murder. The next month on October 4th in 1983, and this is, by the way, nine years after the original incident, a follow-up letter was sent that confirmed in writing what the ADA and the detective had discussed regarding a state law that could provide for the statute of limitations to be extended but only by up to three years, when the defendant was continuously absent from the state or had no reasonably ascertainable place of abode or work within the state. From that back and forth, two things are crystal clear. Dean was their suspect, but they had long since passed the time frame during which they could have mounted a prosecution. This letter from the state attorney's office was meant to let the detective know that nothing more could be done with this case. But even if they were within the prosecutable time frame, I can't see any body of evidence that would overcome reasonable doubt with the set of facts in the documentation that I was provided, not even close. They could put Dean in the area of the shooting at the right time frame with access to a weapon, but they couldn't even find that weapon. They had no proof that it was shot at all, never mind by him, and at least one person in that vehicle said that she wasn't even aware there was a gun in the car at the time. There's also that little matter of a car full of other persons of interest with a set of facts that included witnesses seeing someone of a different physical description brandishing a firearm at the exact same location at the right time frame in a vehicle that would later be similar to one seen by other witnesses from which shots were fired and a matching vehicle description. I don't think any capable defense attorney would have had a problem successfully defending Dean with that set of facts, nor do I see any capable prosecutor taking that case to begin with. So the fact that the investigation into Dean for this crime passed the statute of limitations is interesting, 
I'm not even sure why they kept going if they weren't going to look at anyone else for the crime or a scenario that did involve first or second degree murder. But what's really haunting to me as someone who not only advocates for justice and the right of victims to at least have as many of their questions answered as possible, particularly in cases where prosecution seems unlikely, is a Bradenton Herald article dated June 4, 1987, titled, No One Told Family Outcome of Death Probe. The article was written by staff writer Marty Rosen, and it begins with the line, Someone forgot to tell Eugene Love that his wife's suspected killer was found, but will never be charged. When I read that, having already gone through the 900-plus pages supplied to me by Manatee County Sheriff's Department, frankly, I was gobsmacked. I expected to read something that outlined information that I had somehow missed, because my reading of this case file absolutely does not convince me that Dean was the shooter on December 12, 1974. Not even close. But it certainly doesn't convince me that they ever had a case against him. The article notes that, quote, detectives got a fresh tip in 1983 that led them back to a Bradenton man who originally was a suspect but was never charged. Now, the man that this refers to is Dean. The article goes on to say, there was enough evidence to rule the death a manslaughter and name a suspect according to the case file, but manslaughter charges can't be filed after three years, so no one could be prosecuted for the death. And, quote, Assistant State Attorney Mark Gilner passed that message to the sheriff's detectives who quietly filed the case, then failed to notify the dead woman's family. Now, this statement is accurate. However, there is no mention anywhere in the article of the early blackmail suspect at all, nor does the reporter question why those individuals were not looked into with the same thoroughness as Dean was, given the set of facts at issue here. They weren't looked into at all based on the records that I have. Eugene Love, the husband of the victim, was quoted in this article as saying, We didn't go up and question anyone. I guess we figured if they got any information, they'd contact us out of common decency. I kept thinking someday someone would confess just to get their conscience cleared. This article from 1987 says that the Manatee County Sheriff's Department opened the case file for the Bradenton Herald the previous morning. So I have to wonder how thoroughly the reporter went through that information prior to publication, because I know that it took me a hell of a lot longer than 24 hours to go through all 909 pages that I received. It's possible that they just read the assistant state attorney's letter regarding the statute of limitations and took it at face value without taking into account any supporting reports or documentation. As for that 1983 tip that's mentioned in that article that supposedly reopened the case, this was from a woman who said she had been a friend of one of Dean's sisters at the time. This woman was only 13 years old when the shooting happened, and she simply told police that Dean's sister had told her. So what we have is, Second-hand information given to a 13-year-old. None of the information was new. And essentially what this witness said was that right after the shooting, Dean's sister told her that her brother and John had been driving around in a yellow VW, which belonged to Dean's mother, 
Dean was shooting a gun. The statement summary says Dean tried to put the guns back at Mr. Marshall's home in Palmetto after stealing them, but couldn't do so. According to this witness, Dean told his mother he was scared. This witness thought there may have been a female in the car during the shooting. So, most of this information is not even accurate. They weren't in a yellow VW when they were caught by police. They were in a maroon vehicle with white stripes. And there's no indication in the police report that they tried or even had time to put any weapons back at the home that they had just burgled. The three were seen in mid-burglary attempt, and Palmetto PD was hot on their trail pretty damn quick. This woman, this tipster, is simply repeating information that she heard secondhand almost a decade later when she was 13 years old. Interestingly, the part about Dean putting guns back was an entirely different incident. This was clarified when a reinvestigation in 1993, because this thing kept on chugging along, followed up with Mr. Marshall, who had been the subject of the burglary. In that investigation, it was learned that not only had he dated Dean's mother the year of the shooting, probably how Dean knew he owned weapons in the first place, but in that interview, he said that Dean had stolen a 357 Magnum from his car at another point, but had later returned it. This was before the burglary of his home on the night Diane Love was shot. Mr. Marshall told investigators in 1993 that the judge at the time had dropped the charges against Dean, but he didn't know why. When the investigator followed up with the judge, he said, to his recollection, Marshall himself had wanted the charges dropped. The investigator then informed Mr. Marshall that he had learned that he, Marshall, had been at Dean's house for Christmas that year in 1974. He said he could have been there, then the investigator said he'd also been told that Mr. Marshall had been at Dean's mother's house the morning after when the family was talking about the shooting, and Mr. Marshall said he didn't believe so. What this new information adds to the mix is that Dean's mother was seeing Mr. Marshall and apparently had called another boyfriend on that night to bond her son out of jail. There's no indication as to whether this possible love triangle had any bearing on the one boyfriend going to police about what he thought Dean's mom had allegedly said about the boys shooting that woman at Montgomery Wards, but it does certainly bring up some possible questions. In 1993, investigators went to visit Dean in Tennessee, and he agreed to a recorded interview, only the second one ever done with him in this case. Among the things learned in this interview was that Dean said he wasn't drunk the night of the robbery. He was asked if Mr. Marshall was dating his mother, Bobby, at the time of this incident, and he confirmed that to be accurate. He also remembered that he had been bonded out of jail, he believed two days after the burglary. The investigator asked Dean if he had spent time in prison with someone named Michael Lee, and Dean said yes, he had. And then they asked him if he knew a woman named Katie, who owned a bar, and Dean said yes. Investigators asked him why these two would implicate him, and Dean said he had no idea. But he never shot a gun anywhere in the area of Montgomery Ward store. So I want to illustrate a bit of fancy footwork, also known as a lie, that the investigator told Dean when he spoke to him. 
In his sister Belinda's statement, who they spoke with first, there was this back and forth. The investigator says that prior to going on tape, he had conducted an interview with Belinda regarding an incident that occurred back in December of 1974 where a woman was shot while shopping for Christmas trees and that there was a suspect developed and that suspect was her brother. Uh, you indicated that there were kind of like sketchy details that you remember back then over some kind of injury that you sustained. I want you to just tell me what you know about that incident, basically. I just remember hearing about an incident where a woman was shot in a parking lot. I can't say whether I know that my brother and my cousin John and another cousin, Dynamo, that's what they called her, had broken into Bob Marshall's house. I remember vaguely hearing about the gun. They... They were accused of the shooting, but were cleared because the gun they had stolen from the house didn't match the gun that was used in the shooting. I can't say that my brother, that I actually remember my brother saying that he did, you know, go drive by randomly shooting or that he was involved. I know that he was brought in, I guess brought in for questioning, like I said. It was so many years ago. You say your brother was out randomly shooting? I, I can't honestly say whether he, he told me that. If John told me that, or if she, you know, Dynamo told me that, I can't really remember who it was. I remember hearing about a woman being shot in a parking lot at Christmas time. Okay, but they were out doing random shooting. But, now see, I can't say they said that. I can't remember if they said they were accused of it. But, you know, I do remember someone telling me, now, who it was actually, that the gun that was in the car that they had stolen didn't match the gun that was used in the shooting, so they were cleared of it. All throughout her interview, she repeated that she couldn't say she recalled her brother ever telling her they were out randomly shooting. She could only remember that there was a shooting on Christmas and that possibly she'd been told they'd been accused of it. When they interviewed Dean, here's how that exchange was offered to him. Well, I'm just going by what people have told me. Um, on page 3 of 21 of your sister's transcript, it was yellowed. It says, uh, quote, I actually remember my brother saying that he did, you know, drive by a uh, shooting or that he was involved in something or something to that effect. Now, do you know why your own sister would make statements like that, uh, that you might have been involved in the shooting? I wish I could help y'all. I really do. Now, notice they didn't include the sentence directly before that, which said, I can't say that my brother, that I actually remember my brother saying that he did. They're purposely leaving out the part where she's repeatedly saying that she can't say that she remembers her brother saying anything of the sort. And they're just showing him the part of the sentence where it looks like she's saying the opposite. Remember how I told you in part one that lying to police is a bad idea, but the irony is that they're allowed to lie to you? Police are allowed to lie to witnesses when they question them, and whether that's good or bad, helpful or not, is absolutely a topic for another day. If you want my personal opinion, I think it only muddies the waters at best, and it can lead to wrongful convictions at worst. I think that the best investigators do not need to resort to sketchy tactics or rely on lying to witnesses to get them to talk. The best investigators go into witness interviews and interactions armed only with the desire to get to the truth by asking direct questions and being upfront with the people they're talking to. Later in Belinda's interview, there was this interaction. What, uh, did anyone tell you or did you hear that your brother was in fact involved in that shooting? 
and that it was either accidental or it was just stupidity or just out of foolishness? No. The only thing, like I told you before, the only thing I can really remember is somebody talking about riding around in a car and they were shooting a gun randomly. But I can't say whether it was actually my brother that was in, you know. I don't remember if it's when I heard the story about the lady being shot at the parking lot, if they said that the police decided it was just somebody driving by shooting a gun, or if I was told. I know for a fact that my brother never, ever told me he did it, that he ever shot a gun randomly, or that he ever shot anybody, you know? And it's relevant here that what was printed in the newspapers from that very first week was exactly that, what she's describing. That was the public narrative. Whoever did it was someone randomly shooting from a moving vehicle. That's what was written in the newspaper. What Belinda is describing is what the public was being told, and so that would have been the information everyone was discussing, and that would have been the impression that she and everyone else was left with. And it was one of Bobby's boyfriends that brought her son Dean's name into the story the next day, alleging that his mother had made that excited utterance about those boys shooting the woman at the Montgomery Wards. Yet police never got to the bottom of how or why or if Bobby ever even said that. There's not a single statement from her, including in the report. Every bit of the testimonial evidence against Dean is hearsay and none of it is strong. Let's talk about another one of those witnesses. Michael Lee was in the Hillsborough Correctional Facility with Dean, and here's what he told investigators in 1993. It was December 1977. It was Christmas Eve night, and we were alone in the room, and we'd been talking, thinking about home, and he told me there was some things that was really bothering him, and he'd never told anybody. Then we got... One thing led to another, and he told me that he had shot somebody. And I got him to go into more detail of it, and he... He went into detail himself how he was going past the Christmas place that sold Christmas trees. Uh, I can't remember how long before Christmas it was. And he was with two other people, and he had a loaded twenty-two rifle. And he said he'd been drinking a lot. He was pretty drunk. He didn't mean to do it. He stuck the rifle out the window and just started firing at the Christmas bulbs. He told me it was like a day or two later that he found out he had shot a girl. And then he brought it up again about Christmas Eve of 1990. We were together in a bar, and he was telling me about what happened back then, about the shooting, and then it still bothered him. Diane Love was not shot with a shotgun, nor did Dean have a shotgun in that vehicle at the time they would have passed the Montgomery Wards at the mall. They didn't rob the guns from Mr. Marshall's house until a few hours later. So factually, none of those particular details match what occurred. The investigator then asked, Okay, did he ever ever indicate who else was in the vehicle with him? Lee answered. He mentioned Leo, and then there was a guy named McElwain. Neither of those people, who were, by the way, names of Dean's friends, neither of them were in the vehicle the night of the shooting. Lee then told the investigators that Dean told him only two other people knew about the shooting his ex-wife, Donna, and someone named Roger. The only information that he had, he alleged, was from Dean himself. For her part, in Donna's interview, the ex, she was clear that she never even recalled Dean talking about the shooting to her, other than to say he didn't do it. She did say, quote, um, apparently they had stolen some guns and they were driving around shooting the guns. I don't know what at or where they were doing it. This is just what he's told me. 
and that they were pulled over and the type of gun she was shot with was in the car, but it was tested and it was never fired. Michael Lee also said that he thought they were in another friend's vehicle when it occurred, Leo's vehicle. Interestingly, when investigators went and spoke with Leo, they lied to him flat out. They said Dean had told them he was with Leo in his car the night of the shooting, which was never said in any transcript. That was just another lie to pit the friends against each other, simply to see if anything would shake out. Lee didn't get almost any of the factual elements correct, and every one of the things that he did get right were things known publicly or reported in the newspaper. He mentioned that Dean told him that his sister Belinda had threatened to go to the sheriff's office about the shooting, but when they questioned Belinda about that, she said that wasn't true. She had threatened to go to the sheriff about a burglary that Dean committed of one of her friends. It was an entirely different situation. Lee seems to be conflating quite a few different instances and mixing those in with details that were all widely known, as well as a bunch of things mixed in that were just patently false. In my opinion, nothing about his statement is all that helpful from a prosecutorial perspective. He would be ripped to shreds on the stand with the amount of information that he got wrong. When investigators spoke with Katie, a local bar owner, where some of these folks hung out, all that she would say was that she had heard over the years that Dean was driving by and shot that woman, but when she had asked her son and daughter who knew some of these guys, neither of them had heard any such thing. She couldn't recall who had told her or where she'd heard it, but she did remember being out front of a Woolco store where she worked and calling the sheriff's office and telling them that she had heard a rumor that Dean had shot the woman at Montgomery Wards, but no one involved with it told her directly. Katie herself described it this way, I heard from somebody that heard from somebody that heard from somebody, and that is basically the most accurate description of every single bit of witness testimony related to Dean having shot a weapon out of the vehicle that night. Every single bit of it is hearsay, often twice or thrice removed. At one point in Katie's interview, the investigator showed her a piece of cardboard from a cigarette carton with writing on it, which she verified to be in her handwriting. It had Dean's name written on it. The investigator asked, Do you know how that got to police? She said, No. The investigator said, Because I'm looking here on this report and it says 5588 at 930. And it's got Roger's name, came from Katie's bar, conversation of obituaries, old homicide case. Katie said she heard Dean make statements. He drove by and shot into a crowd of uh, killing somebody. No time frame or how long ago the statement was made. So first off, that date in 1988 would have been 14 years after the homicide. So if that is the date the item was received, that's quite a bit after the fact. Katie reiterated that Dean never told her he shot into a crowd killing someone. She did say that if Roger said she gave that piece of cigarette carton with Dean's name on it to him, he wouldn't lie. So she assumed that she did, and she even confirmed that she used to use parts of old cigarette cartons to write notes on at the bar. She could only surmise that Roger had asked her to write down the name, and she did. The next investigator went to Roger about the Winston cigarette carton with Dean's name on it, and here's what he said. Well, I was out at Katie's bar, and they were on 64, and there was some people talking about a drive-by shooting, and that's... And they also told Katie about it before, and, uh, I said, 
I can't read or write, so I had Katie to write the guy's name down, and I said I'd deliver it to Kenny Pearson, tell him what was said, or what I'd heard. I heard that they said that they drove by, and they just fired out the window, and that's... And then Katie told me that they'd shot somebody out the window, too, and that's when I had her write that down for me. When you say they, was somebody in the bar talking? Yeah, there was three or four people sitting there with him, and I was just sitting there, overheard the conversation, and, uh... With who? I don't know who they were sitting with. Okay, were these men or women talking? All men. Were they... The way that you I interpreted the conversation, was that that these men that actually shot the women? Right. It's the way... The way they stated that the one guy just stuck the gun out the window and fired, uh, there was one that was sitting there and he was laughing about it. What were they laughing about? I don't... Well, they was drinking. I don't know whether they were laughing about that, but they was all drinking and laughing there, and then Katie come to the side and just tell me about that. What did Katie tell you, Roger? Just try to think back. Uh, Katie had told me that that guy there had stated that he had shot the woman out the car window. Okay, now, when you point out your finger, you're referring to this label right here that says Dean on it. Right. Did she tell you that Dean was there in the bar? Did she make reference and did she say, and there he is right there and that's him over there? No, I have no idea whether one of them was Dean or not. Katie says Dean never said anything to her about shooting anyone. In this situation, sounds like a group of men were possibly discussing the shooting and when Roger asked Katie who the shooter was, she wrote Dean's name down. Certainly nothing here suggests that Dean himself was laughing it up in a bar about shooting someone. When Roger's saying, that guy there, he was literally pointing at the Winston carton for the investigators. That guy there, that guy whose name is on the Winston carton. But he wasn't saying that guy there over at the table. He was just saying that's the guy he heard did it. I found another troubling thing on page 560 of the 909-page report provided to me by the Manatee County Sheriff's Office. And I'm not sure who the intended recipient was, but it appears to have been a summary prepared by Detective Malal related to the 1992 reinvestigation, the second reinvestigation of this case during the time that that questioning that I just read you occurred. The first paragraph accurately summarizes what happened on December 12, 1974 at the Christmas tree lot the second paragraph, however, is one that I take issue with. It reads as follows, quote, For some time, the homicide remained an open case at the sheriff's office for many years. In 1998, a subject named Dean provided the sheriff's office, along with the state attorney's office, an interview in which he claimed that he shot Mrs. Love, but stated that the shooting was accidental because he was shooting at the lights on the lot. At the time, the investigators determined that the subject could not be charged with second-degree murder. However, in Florida, the statute of limitations had run out for this criminal offense. Dean could not be charged. Yes, so there is nowhere in this report, no interview, no transcript, no document, that shows that Dean ever claimed that he shot Mrs. Love or even fired a gun on the night in question. In every transcript and statement, he denied doing so. In fact, in the 1993 interview conducted by Detective Malol, the person who wrote this, in Tennessee at the Hendry County Sheriff's Office, 
There is no statement that he accidentally or otherwise shot Mrs. Love, nor do these detectives ever press him with any questions like, in this 1988 statement, you admitted to shooting Mrs. Love, which you would expect if he had already admitted to doing so. You would also expect that if he had already admitted to doing so back in 1988, none of them would have been still investigating in 1992. They would have already gotten the answer they wanted four years earlier. There is no way to take the detective statement, quote, in 1988, a subject named Dean provided the sheriff's office along with the state's attorney's office an interview in which he claimed that he shot Mrs. Love, but stated that the shooting was accidental because he was shooting at the lights on the lot. There's no way to take that statement as anything but a misstatement, because the closest that he, that detective, or any investigator on this case got to that was Dean's prison friend, Mike Lee, saying that Dean told him that. Dean himself never provided any statement of such. In this same 1993 statement with Detective Malol, he says this, Okay, uh, I told you about Katie's Bar and Grill, about Roger. Roger being at Katie's and being present when a couple males were in the bar, and they made a statement, and Katie wrote down your name as the one that was making a statement that shot somebody. What's your reaction to that? Again, this is a gross misinterpretation of what actually occurred. Roger specifically told them he did not know the males at the table and it was never established that Katie was saying Dean was one of the men sitting at that table discussing the shooting. Dean's answer to the investigator asking, what's your reaction to that, was, Huh, I don't know, because like I said, I've never said I've shot anybody, you know? I've just never said that. You know, I don't know where it came from. I just, I don't know. If I were to sum up what occurred in the investigation of this case, I would say that Detective McKay, the initial investigator, had a couple good suspects in the black males in the green vehicle that were seen by multiple witnesses, but then this investigation took a turn down the Tunnel Vision Highway, the second that one of Dean's mom's boyfriends called the Sheriff's Department to say that she made that excited utterance about not spending any more money because those boys shot that woman in the Montgomery Ward's parking lot. Police never interviewed Dean's mom to even ask if she'd said that or if the boyfriend misheard her or misrepresented what she said. And maybe she did say it because she saw the shooting on the news that night and then got that call from Willie May after their attempted burglary. Here's exactly what Willie May's statement said. I called Dean's mother and she said for me to hang up, so I did. It might have been beneficial for someone in law enforcement to ask Willie May what exactly she said to Dean's mother. It appears that nobody bothered to do that, and because Bobby refused to talk to police about her son, there is zero record of what she heard and when she heard it. This case is a lot of muddy water that led to a mudslide which swept everyone in one direction, directly at Dean. What began as local gossip appears to have become the accepted history of this case, despite there being no verifiable facts to back any of it up. It's all hearsay. People talking, perpetuating the story. That mixed with some police work that seems to have overshot the mark by a wide margin. Anyone that's listened to my podcast from the inception knows how loath I am to jump on the criticize the cops bandwagon. 
That's just not my thing. I try to look at each individual case and incident separately on its own. I think that's done way too often when people either aren't getting the answers that they want or just don't like law enforcement. I think it's lazy and I think it's frankly too easy. But I also don't have a problem criticizing cops if I think they made mistakes. And this case is a mess. That's mostly the doing of a couple of investigators that got a little too distracted by that shiny object. I wanted to track down Detective McKay, the one investigator that I think was on the right track before this train got derailed. Sadly, he has since died, so I wasn't able to get his perspective on how and why this all may have gone south. It is my opinion that Dean wasn't the best suspect in this case, given the factual information we do have. But at the very least, I am convinced that prosecutors never had a convincing case against him. I don't think that case existed. I have given you guys the relevant excerpts. I told you that there is no statement where Dean confessed to the shooting, nor is there a single first-hand account of anyone seeing any person in the vehicle he was in that night shooting from it. But there was a sighting of someone shooting out of a vehicle at that intersection that night at the exact time the shooting occurred. It just wasn't Dean. A vehicle matching the description, a green Pontiac Bonneville, license plate starting with 16, was pulled over the next day. The registered owner was asked where he'd been the night before, and he said in Palmetto, a few miles away, with two females who were never located or questioned. That person, who was the registered owner of that vehicle, is now incarcerated for life. He committed a robbery in January of 1975, about a month after the love shooting, and he was sentenced to 30 years. He got out in 1991, after 16 years incarcerated, and then on April 10, 2000, he was arrested again for shooting a taxi driver in Sarasota, Florida. At the time, Mr. Willis worked for Diplomat Taxi. After a dispute where he accused another taxi driver of stealing his map book while parked near the airport, witnesses say he walked to the victim's parked taxi near the baggage claim area, shot the man through the passenger side door, and then walked back to his vehicle. He had told fellow cab drivers that day that he, quote, had a gun and was wanting to go to death row over this. It's hard when you realize that it looks like a case got away from law enforcement, whatever the reason, and usually it's not intentional. Law enforcement is made up of human beings and human beings make mistakes. I researched this case along with a group of other cases from the same general area as the Kingfish Boat Ramp murders in Holmes Beach, which I covered last season, and I think I can rule this one out as having been related to that incident. But I do remain unsettled by the lack of resolution. So if anyone has information about the shooting of Diane Love on December 12, 1974, at the Christmas tree lot behind Montgomery Wards in Bradenton, Florida, off Cortez Road, please contact the Manatee County Crime Stoppers at 866-634-TIPS. That's 866-634-TIPS. You can also message me on the Down and Away Facebook page or email me 
at deckerjenny at gmail.com. That's D-E-C-K-E-R-J-E-N-I at gmail.com. Stay tuned for another case from that neck of the woods.